And so I'm thinking, okay, if the business is good, fundamentals are good, should I just pay up? Should I just buy it? Because I can do X, Y, and Z operations. I can optimize. I can grow it because they're not doing X, Y, and Z. I can aggregate the industry or whatever it may be. There's things that I can do to increase the value overall. Welcome to the Small Business Mentor Podcast, where we shine a light on the black holes of business growth with your host, Alan Pence. In each episode, we explore the leaps and bounds entrepreneurs make as they push their businesses beyond the 1 million mark into the realm of professional sustainable growth. Stay with us as we navigate the journey from brute force to finesse. All right, this week, Small Business Mentor, we have Ujwal Velagapudi with us. He is a beast in the entrepreneurial world. It's like a business buying machine, and he's also a big X guy, like I'm trying to be. So I'm trying to learn how to how to be like big on X. You know, you have to give me some pointers. Welcome to the show, Ujwal. Great to have you here. Thanks, Alan. No, I appreciate you bringing me on. So for people that don't know, who are you? Like, are you like some kind of Holdco guy? Like I told you yesterday, I think of you as like a business junkie. Like you're not, I don't think of you as a guy who's like, hey, I got to maximize my returns. I'm like the PE guy. You're more like, I just love businesses and I want to buy them. So tell us who you are, how you got where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. I would say definitely more of the latter. I started right out of college. I was working a day job in supply chain, working in the aerospace and automotive industries. And then simultaneously, I was buying small commercial real estate in the city of Detroit, where I'm from, or in the suburbs of Detroit, but went to the city, uh, found some commercial real estate on Craigslist, pennies on the dollar. This was right after the city had filed for bankruptcy. So I was buying some of those. What was it like, uh, office or was it like retail or what? It was retail. It had, my first one had a barber shop, a clothing store, and like a chess club. So how old were you? 22. How do you go buy that? Were you always sort of like a, like a hustler or what? Yeah. Hustler, Pokemon cards to air force ones to cars and would always buy, sell. And then I was like, oh, okay, like I'm old people, adults, they invest their money in real estate is what I've heard at least on TV or articles. So I'm like, okay, I'm an adult now. I got to put my money somewhere. So let me go buy real estate. But the suburbs weren't making sense. I'm so envious of you because like, I mean, at 22, I was such an idiot and I was like focusing on drinking beer and I never would have thought of buying commercial real estate. If I had, I'd be a billionaire right now. So good for you. Yeah. So I kept buying real estate in the city of Detroit and then that snowballed into dozens of units. And from there had gone into, I was like, oh, okay, I'm on Craigslist all day long buying my deals and came across businesses like, oh, you can buy a pizza shop. And long story short, on that side, a lot of failed deals, a lot of deals that broke through on the the 11th hour and finally ended up closing on a small sports bar and bought that and then never drank in my life, knew nothing about that, except I used to work at bars and security in college. I could have nailed, I could have nailed that one for you. Sitting around wa- drinking and watching football is I'm very good at both of those things. And so this was also a hockey bar. So we were right next to our NHL arena and I knew nothing about hockey. (laughs) It was fun, but it was, uh, it was a great time. And then, so that started my business journey and bought a gym, e-commerce, FBA business, virtual assistant agency or software consulting, 
and vending machine businesses. And so, so I came from a very different path through buying stuff off of Craigslist and just kind of hustling and really learning the more professional side of things today, only in the last couple of years, interacting with more proper buyers, professional buyers in the PE world and the banking world. Uh, I didn't know what a search was till I was on a date with a girl and she was like, oh, you're a searcher, right? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I went to the bathroom and I looked it up. <laughs> I looked up what it was. And I'm like, yeah, that is what I do. <laughs> That's what a hustler does. He goes to the bathroom and Googles, right? What, uh, so you were working in another job, right? Doing the supply chain stuff, right? What do you think you were making? Like, uh, like give us kind of like a, what percentage of your income and how did that change over time? And then when did you jump? Right out of college, I was making 60 K and then there was a point right before I was about to quit. My salary was about 90 and it's making 92 a year, but my real estate was making flirting with like 70 to 80. Uh, the gym was 50 to 55. And then the econ was losing me money, but I was, I was making like a grand or two a month off that. And I'm like, okay, well I'm making this doing the businesses. And I was just in the process of selling the bar and license and everything. So I wanted to transfer out of the day job because I just kept looking at it. I'm working 40 hours a week because I was, I'd put in the bare minimum at my day job. And I'm doing all this on the side after work, you know, opening up the bar at five, closing it at two, going back to the office, stuff like that. And then I got it fully automated to the point where I was so bored out of my mind after work. So I'm like, well, if I could buy something bigger or something different and not have to do my day job, I could, I could have like a massive portfolio of a ton of companies. Right. So that's when I realized, yeah, well, this is not worth it. I am constraining myself. I'm putting a limit on what I could do because of this day job. And it was a tough one to pass up because as soon as I put in my two weeks, one of my very first managers, he reaches out, gives me like a 30, 35% bump and allows me to work hundred percent remote. This was pre COVID time. So, uh, especially in that, in that industry, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't very common. So it was a lot to turn down, but at the same time, I was like, I'm doing it out of the principle. And the principle is that I am betting on myself to be able to go to that next level. So you were like, how are you running this gym? Do you have like a manager in place and stuff? Are you like hiring people on the side? I did. Yeah. I had a manager in place and, uh, he was running the show and the first two, three months I did the renovations. I was staying there a lot, really spent a lot of time in the business and then completely extracted myself. And even though it was 20 minutes away from my house, I purposely did not go there because I knew that at one point I would be running businesses completely remote. And so I wanted to pretend as if I wasn't there so that I could get a feel for how to manage it, make sure I'm doing everything I can remotely. And then also the, the managers know that, okay, they have the autonomy, but he's overseeing it. And, you know, we had that report that we could do that pretty well. God damn, man. You are like my hero. I just, this is like incredible. I love it. So, all right. So you jump out and then you sold. So it sounds like you sold off a lot of these early things, right? That weren't great. So then what did you do after that? As soon as I quit my job, I went to Thailand because I wanted to, I said, you know, I'm retired. I'm 26. I'm retired. Thailand, Vietnam for a year or two was, was what I was thinking because of course, Tim Ferriss and his book, I was literally working five hours a week. I uh, had three income streams from the businesses. 
the gym, e-commerce, and the real estate portfolio completely, you know, absentee managed. And two weeks in, I'm sitting there on the beach on an island about 10 feet away from the water. I'm like, this sucks, man. This absolutely sucks. And I'm like, I can't do this. I'm which beach were you on? Which beach? It was near Pattaya. It was just some random island and it was very serene. It was beautiful, but I just, it was the people. I could not do it. I, I just needed to be around more ambitious people. I was hungry. I was excited. And I had just gone to my very first a retreat for all online business owners. And because I had my e-commerce company at that time, and I just, that was the first time seeing and meeting in real life people. I was the tiniest guy in real life meeting people that made a million dollars in profit. And I was like, holy cow, like me and a couple of other guys that were on the lowest end of the totem pole, we're all 26, 27. And we're like, oh my gosh, that guy's making a million bucks a year. Who does that? That's, that's like, you only do that in the movies. And that was unfathomable to me at the time. And so I went back, tried to get a job in the startup world, almost six, 7,000 applications later. I couldn't even get a job at LA Fitness for 45K. That pissed me off because I owned a gym and I was like, screw this. I'm, I'm not meant for a job or a startup world. I'm not sexy on paper. So I went back and, um, I bought a company and it was a software consulting business in Texas. And that took a massive hit during COVID enterprise sales, long sales cycle. And we were pretty much captive product to Oracle. And so from there went to look to buy another small business. And that's when I first came around the SMB Twitter world, the search world, and heard about all these kids buying companies and using debt, which I've never had debt before, except for credit cards. And so you were able to buy the software thing with just like profits from other stuff you sold? Yes. And kind of no, uh, yes. And that it was all cash, but I would take, if you've heard of SoFi or Upstart, like just P2P loans, balance transfers on my credit cards just other weird stuff like that at 18, 22, 24% APR, just because that was cash. I needed cash. And so, yeah, I did weird stuff like that. But you didn't get upside down? No, no. Okay, that's good. Wow. That part I do not recommend anyone listen to and do. <laughs> yeah, that is a scary, scary path. And I was lucky that I did have the day job. I had the real estate as a backbone when I lost a couple bucks in this business. I lost a couple bucks in that business, made a few bucks there. But then from there, yeah, went on, learned, okay, I was thinking, okay, let's buy a smaller business, mid six figures, and maybe build out like a bigger or a real estate portfolio. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, these kids are buying multi-million dollar businesses. How in the world are they doing it? And they've never bought a business before. And that's when I first learned, oh, the experience that I've had is actually valuable, even though I bought very small businesses. And I've got all these scars to show for, I've got all that experience. And so started looking at bigger and bigger deals. And that's when I went and bought a slightly bigger business. And right now looking at, uh, continuing to build out the portfolio with larger businesses. And so you still have the software thing or is that? I sold that recently. Yeah. I sold that about a year ago. So what kind of stuff do you have? So you have one bigger business and then you're looking at others now. One bigger business in the vending space and then one uh, smaller one in it's a virtual assistant agency. They're all US based assistants. So, all right. So here's a question. So there's like, I talked about this with Matzner yesterday. So you're kind of doing like a hold co thing, right? Where it's like, I'm buying 
disparate kinds of businesses, right? Vending and mm -hmm. VA. So have you ever thought like, okay, I really like vending or I really like VA because of these reasons. I know it now. So why don't I go buy 10 more of those and run a playbook on VA businesses or whatever it is you decide? Where, what's that thought process versus like going and buying like a toy company that you don't know anything about? No, that's a good question. I think going back to what I was saying, how my earlier years were, it was basically a old coat, right? I had my day job, I had my bar, I had my real estate, I had my gym, I had my e-commerce. It was a whole co. I just didn't know what it was called. And just like you were a searcher and you didn't know what that was called. Right? But I think the foundation of, of that was just me and my desire to learn. And I was just curious about the weird stuff that was out there. And so that has not gone away. And so for me, I'm still very curious on all that stuff. And like you were saying earlier, I'm not looking to maximize my financial returns. So I really don't care for doing a roll up in one industry to absolutely maximize my financial potential. I want to satiate my mental curiosities and that's more exciting. That's more valuable for me. I love that because I do feel like in the whole coal world, a lot of people do it well. I'm not saying they don't, but they don't admit that a lot of it is just owner preference, right? You know, it's like, hey, this is what I want to do. I totally defensible, right? To me, because this is how I like learn about the world and, you know, engage my mind. So I love that you're just kind of upfront about it. And that's why I call you a business junkie. Like I was like, hey, if that guy had paid you a million bucks a year that you wanted, I still think you would have been happier just going and buying a bunch of weird businesses, right? It's not always about the money. It's about just like the, the variety and the learning. And I haven't found the right industry that I'm like, okay, I'm all in on this. So like I'm staring at a spreadsheet of uh, over a hundred different types of industries and sub industries, and I'm still trying to. What are you looking at now? Like what are, you don't have to say exactly, but like. Is it more like the vending thing or more like professional services or more or out of that? I really like high CapEx stuff. All right. Say more about that because nobody else does. I don't know why they don't. I, I'm wondering, am I doing things wrong or am I not aware of certain things? But I love high CapEx just because the write-off, day one, you're buying all these asset sales. And I know it's going down, but with the 179 and just, just uh, depreciating everything, at least last year, 100%. That's pretty attractive where you can take that in the first year and every subsequent acquisition that you have or every subsequent inventory or, or capital expenses that you have can all be written off. And so for, for me, I'm not, I've, I've losses for years and years to come. And, and so I like that aspect. I do like that it is a moat. I don't care if you've got especially in the different types of businesses or in rental, it's a little bit different, but if you have long-term contracts in whatever industry that you're in, I mean, that is a massive moat to be able to say, you can't compete with me. I don't care if you have 10, 20, $30 million. I have that in equipment too, but what I have that you don't have is the relationships and contracts. And so that's huge. And so, whereas, so you're looking at some rental stuff and considering some rentals, but I want long-term rentals. I really like the space. Actually, I was talking to a guy in my EO group yesterday. He does building patios and backyard kind of stuff. And he has all this equipment. He's like, God, like I rent, you know, I've never just rent this because it costs so much. And I'm like, 
well, you got all this equipment. Why don't you just start renting it out? I think you, you'd probably make more money just renting your equipment than doing all the work. Yeah, I think it's an interesting space, but anything high CapEx and weird, weird stuff. I think there's an important point here about this CapEx thing. Okay, so first of all, have you read Cable Cowboy, John Malone? No. Definitely read that. Okay, so he's the guy that came up with the term EBITDA, or he popularized it, at least. He made it famous. And his whole thing, he was he was like early on in the cable industry, and he built TCI, which eventually sold to AT&T. And now, now he owns Liberty Media. He like owns the Home Shopping Channel and blah, blah, blah. So that guy's a genius, right? He was in Outsiders, that great book. But basically what he realized is like every time we build a cable system, we're amortizing, you know, we're depreciating it over X number of years, and we just take the cash flow and go build another one. And so he basically built this whole machine where he never paid taxes, right? And that's why he came up with the EBITDA concept, because he couldn't get Wall Street to see it for a long time. He was running TCI as a public company in the 70s, and it didn't do very well. And then all of a sudden, everyone figured it out, and boom, it was hugely valuable. Um, so anyway, that's a great one to read. And I think you've definitely hit on what's good about CapEx. And I think the other part that I would highlight is that everybody wants asset light software companies, right? That's what everybody does. So they bid them all up. And now it's like, all right, I'm paying... You know, you go on these little sites and it's like micro acquire. You're paying like four times 300K, you know, <laughs> give me a break. Whereas now like people aren't investing in what you're investing in. So probably the returns are better, right? That's the other thing. It's like if everyone bids up one asset class that has one set of characteristics, go find the other, right? So I applaud you for that. So you're looking at CapEx heavy. I think there's still plenty of competition. I don't know uh, from where back in the day. Just a handful of years ago, there were not this many people. I don't think there was this much private buyer interest and certainly not enough, not this much in B interest where I feel like every industry is just being turned around and just rolled up. I fully agree with that. I mean, what I, I guess where I would say is like, I don't think you've got your Harvard MBAs coming in to buy vending machines that much. I mean, it happens or when you're in like. SaaS software space, you got the smartest people in the world working against you. I think in vending, you know, no offense, but you know, I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's like all the geniuses of the world. So yes, and I but I agree with you, everything is expensive. And my worry is with, you know, I personally think we're gonna have higher interest rates for a long time. Cause I see, I mean, I just look at the employment picture, right? Unemployment is now 3.7%. I don't think it's going down. We're not making more people. So immigration's getting cut off. So I just see like a lot of persistent inflation going forward. And uh, these asset values are going to have to deflate at some point. That's what I get worried about. Personally, I don't think they will. Just with the amount of, despite how the market's looking, despite how arrogant and cocky some sellers and brokers are, it has not deterred many buyers. I mean, I know there's, a few that are a bit more conservative that are standing on the sidelines, but we're all still looking for deals, right? We're all still looking. I'm still looking, but, and I'm throwing out offers with heavy RNFs, heavy seller financing, all that stuff. People don't call me back. <laughs> you know, people, people reject me in an instant. So I still think there's a lot more people out there, especially in this, the small lower end, a few million dollars in EV up to, you know, five, 10 plus million, the lower end of the very low lower middle market area, the SBA is still available. Yes, it's at 11, whatever percent, but still all these guys have that fully available at their disposal. And if they're willing to pay it, sellers are willing to sell. And I don't think we're, I, I just don't think we're going to ever get back 
to the days of a, a proper one to three X for a sizable business. I have one pushback on it and then we'll move on to another topic because no one needs to hear us debate macroeconomics. But my take is that the lags in the raising of interest rates are really, really long this time, longer than they've been before. And actually, almost none of us have lived through a cycle where we had rising interest rates. So that we have to go back to the 80s to have that, to the 70s, really. So... It takes a long time. We're used to these quick, sharp recessions and then the Fed cuts and everything's fine, right? I don't think that's what's happening. So I think what you got is a lot of debt, floating rate debt, that's going to be rolling over in the PE world over the next two years and in, you know, like the Russell 2000 smaller companies. So like, I don't think we've seen the bankruptcies yet, right? They're still off in the future. And I don't think the Fed's lowering rates because wage growth is still kind of going, even though CPI is coming down, wage growth is still going up. So I feel like we haven't seen the bloodletting yet. Now, I do agree that there's going to be, I think there's going to be asset deflation. I don't think it's going to be extreme. And I think it's going to be one of these things where it just doesn't go up for years and years and years and inflation grinds down the real cost. So that would be my one take is we haven't quite seen it. And of course, that's not going to happen to the low level market, but these aren't the guys who are in the adjustable loans, but that will push down as the economy falters. So I think, you know, if they start laying off all these people, stock market goes down, blah, blah, blah. We have a recession that's going to blow up a lot of these deals that were at the peak price at the top. People will go bankrupt. It'll bring valuations down. I think that'll happen, but I agree. I don't think it's going back to like some super cheap thing. So I think, you know, I kind of in between on that. So think about it this way, then why don't you like start companies? Then? If everybody is buying, paying too much for them, why don't you supply them to? I never have. I don't think it's my cup of tea. I just don't get excited about starting something from scratch. Give me what you got. I want income from day one. I want to inherit your 50 year old business, 10 year old business, whatever you've built and take it to the next level. Cause I'm too lazy to start it from scratch. That's a lot of work. But my thing is like, I want to go where people are paying the most for stuff, right? So if everyone's going to pay a lot for something, then I want to go either supply that or go where they're not looking. So that I think is going to be the challenge going forward. If every asset class is up at some point, it's like, all right, you should just go supply people with companies if that's what they want. Maybe you can figure out a way where it's not you, but it's like you're hiring a team to go do something. Okay. So on this acquisition thing, you had tweeted the other day, does it really hurt to overbid and pay an extra turn or two for a business you deem as excellent per your criteria? So tell me about like what you were thinking and like what kind of response you got on that. I think it was on Twitter a couple of years ago. I had read, you'd rather buy, which I, I didn't know this was a thing and Someone pointed out that Munger had said this, that, and I forgot the exact quote, but you'd rather pay a fair price for a great business than a great price for a fair business or something along those lines. And essentially saying that you'd rather pay up a little bit more and pay an okay rate, but make sure the business is solid versus great terms. And, you know, as I'm looking through this current environment, because I really haven't bought on market deals in over two and a half years. It's just crazy. Some of these valuations and some of the responses that I get, uh, I just can't stomach some of that. And so I'm thinking, okay, if the business is good, 
fundamentals are good. Should I just pay up? Should I just buy it? Because I can do X, Y, and Z operations. I can optimize. I can grow it because they're not doing X, Y, and Z. There's, I can aggregate the industry or whatever it may be. There's things that I can do to increase the value overall. And I know that this is an industry, this is a business and a team that has the longevity, not just a couple of years and flip this thing, but actually for decades where I can still be involved in the industry. I think that fundamentally has a lot more value than another business where, okay, I can pick this up and I can make more cash flow today. Let's just say at a, at a 2.8 X versus buying something at a 3.5 X. I mean, well, there might be a reason for that, that smaller business or the lower valued business might just not have the juice the fundamentals, the foundation in it to be able to squeeze, to take it to year five, to take it to year 10 after acquisition, or might just be humming along. Whereas the other business, they could skyrocket. I mean, you know, valuation's not going to dictate everything, but I think along that thought process, buying a fundamentally better business, I think will be more accretive in the long run a decade later when you take a look back at things. So, so this is definitely like the classic Buffett Munger thing, right? So Buffett was this, he talked about buying cigar butts, right? These companies that had, they were kind of falling apart, but they had like cash in the balance sheet or like Berkshire actually, like every time they closed down a, um, a mill, they would get all this cash. So like, even though the business was going like this, they could kind of harvest it. Right. So those are his cigar butts. Like you found a cigar butt on the ground, you could get a puff or two out of it before you threw it out again, right? But it was free, right? So, or cheap or whatever. So, and then Buffett or Munger started talking to him in the 60s and said, hey, look, that's great, but you're doing all this work and you're getting one or two puffs. Wouldn't it be better to just find like a full cigar? And even if you pay for it, you get to smoke the whole thing. And so the classic change, I think this is what I tweeted back to you, not the, the original quote was uh, like when they bought C's Candy in the late 60s, early 70s, and they paid 25 million for it. And that they thought that was outrageous, right? And like Buffett was like, I cannot believe, they were like literally not a cent more. Like if the family had pushed back, they wouldn't have bought it. And it's something like they've made like a billion dollars off of this thing and they haven't had to invest anything in it. It just shoots off cash. They raise prices every year. And so this started Buffett, like Munger was the one that talked him into it. And he's like, look, this is a good business. So it's worth paying, they would say, a fair price. Because the other Buffett line is price is my due diligence, right? I can't figure out everything about this business. And so like, I'm going to do some due diligence, but mostly the price is the due diligence. Because even if it goes bad, I don't lose that much, right? So I do think that there's something there, right? The quality business, but there's a price at which it doesn't make sense. And how confident are you that this is the quality business, right? Can you underwrite that? That's what scares me the most about it. I don't feel as confident in my like company underwriting capabilities as Buffett does. So, well, of course not. Nobody does. But like, I worry about that. So I'm like, mm, I need to buy cheap, which means I don't buy as much, right? Because I can't find as much cheap stuff, right? So what do you think? So you're looking at a company you think is high quality or what, what was it a specific company? No, it's just general thought. No, it wasn't a specific company, but just general because I'm, I keep looking at the deals and I keep looking at, okay, I want the valuation to be lower and I want my terms. I want there to be an earn out, less risk on me, share the risk with the seller. Uh, like you were talking about, share some of the, the risk that I can't foresee from diligence or lack of. And so I just can't get people to consume that. I just don't think the market 
the sellers are just not going to when there's so many buyers out there that are willing to pay cash, all cash at close. So thought process, I'm like, okay, if there's a really good business out there, fundamentally great, headed on the right trajectory, good industry, everything going for you. Okay. Let's, let's change your thought process a little bit, pay up a little bit more and actually consider paying not top dollar, but something fair. I think it makes sense. I mean, the other thing though, that it brings me back to is our beginning of our conversation where you talked about, like, I like to buy a lot of different kinds of businesses. And so like, as valuations go up, I'm sort of like, man, I kind of want to buy similar businesses so I can get a cheat codes here somewhere. Right. Like, because I own a, you know, like a candy company, I can probably go talk to other candy store owners and get, you know, I know how to talk to them. I know how to underwrite them. I know like how to count how many people walk by in an hour and I can do the math based on that. Right. Whereas like Alan, the owner of a government consulting firm doesn't know shit about that. Um, I also know like if I do it in the same area, I can share a general manager. So I don't have to pay that much. So it feels like to me, as asset prices go up, the case for sticking in a lane that you really get to know goes up. Uh, what do you think? I haven't thought about it like that, but. That is naturally what I have been doing now that you say that, <laughs> just because I keep looking around. See, what I get from you, Ujwal, is like you figured out all this stuff on your own and you could have just read a book about Buffett and you would have. But the fact that you've already figured it out without reading it, I had to read all this crap. I didn't figure it out. So just read like five books and you'll be like, you're going to be a billionaire. But I've got the scars to show for all that. I think that's the way I learned. <laughs> no, but I, I have naturally been doing that uh, all of my deal flow is within the industries that I'm in in today. And despite how much I'm trying to not go all in on that, it just keeps bringing me back because I can speak that language. I can underwrite it that much easier. I know exactly everything about it. So, but I'm still looking to diversify. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But um, yeah, like to that point, I went to a YPO deal summit thing last spring and they had this guy who buys truck repair facilities. So like for bucket trucks, for like utilities and stuff, not like 18 wheelers, apparently there are a bunch of these things, right? So he inherited one, I think, or something like that and ran in and he's like, we can only grow it so much, you know, it's a capped facility. So he started buying them and, and all he does now, so he has other people who integrate them, run them, blah, blah, blah. They have earnouts for the owners and stuff, but, uh, all he does is go and try to get people to sell them to him. And he has like a whole innovative program where he sends them a newsletter every year featuring the people he bought from and all this stuff is really cool. But what I realized is like, he knows everything about one of those truck things and he can underwrite it in five seconds and he can be like, I'll pay you this. And like, if they're like, no, I want this. He's like, no, nah, I'm just going to move on. And if you, and after the buyer that you try to get fails to do the deal, come back to me because I'll pay you that because I know what it's worth. And I will, I will close. I know how to run this. I know exactly. I will have everything perfect. And he, even to the point where he doesn't do working capital, he prices it in. He's like, dude, I cannot, when I try to convince this guy, this truck repair guy of what working capital is, he thinks I'm talking about some kind of wall street thing meant to like cheat him. So like, he's just like, I just price it in. Right. So he's just like optimized it for that. And no one's going to be able to buy like that guy. Right. Nobody. That's a moat on acquisition. So I think you're moving toward it. It feels like. Yeah. And I do the exact same thing. This last guy. No, I mean, I've never done working capital with any of these guys. So I would just, yeah, here's the offer. Here's the deal and take it or leave it sort of thing. Cause I really don't care to keep buying in my industry. 
But if you want it, come back. I'm here. I know how to close. I've done this a handful of times. I will close. Cash ready now. Let's go. We can close in two weeks. I don't, I can do two weeks of diligence and I'm all good. We got the documents, everything ready. I've done all these transitions with the vendors. I will move myself to your facility, get an Airbnb for three months, live it, breathe it. Wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I've done that a few times. So you're an animal. All right. So I have a question. So my son comes to me the other day, he's 15 and he's kind of like budding entrepreneur. And he tells me he and his buddy are going to do this FBA business. I'm like, oh God, don't do that. That's just awful. So if you wanted to make like, I don't know, five, 10 K, 20 K in high school, because you were that kid, right? Selling Pokemon cards, trading. What would you be doing today? What would little Ujual be doing in his bedroom? Today in high school, I don't think quite back then I had, I was making a couple bucks, but not quite that kind of money. I think today, man, I would be like, if I knew a little bit of what I knew now, and I'd be going back and just hustling. I, I think I could do anything. I, I think selling stuff, I mean, selling anything, right? But I think to make the most money, especially at that age, I'd probably link up with someone that's 10, 15 years older and doing something awesome, like maybe 20 years older. And just because I'm thinking from a business owner's perspective right now, if I had anybody come to me, there's, I don't think there's a business owner out there that would say no to hard work, good work ethic, reliable, and just curious and as an all out hustler. I mean, some of those qualities. All right. All right. So say he comes to you, say he comes to you. He's like, look, I got to do my homework and everything, but I got time in the summers. I got time in the weekend. What would you tell him to do? So for, let's just say for this community, everyone's looking for deal flow, get on the phones, knock on some doors, go get some deal flow. There's, I mean, operationally, sure. You can learn a little bit. That might be a little bit more complex, but tell me something. So whatever business you're in, you're looking to sell some contracts in X or for me, looking for new locations, just go knock on doors. Just find some new customers for me. Be the guy that's, you know, I mean, we had this in, in college. I would get paid to go deliver business cards or flyers for parties. So we had a club party coming up this Saturday. Go to every single dorm room and hand out and talk to everybody. Just say, hey, you know, come out. Like, we're having this party and hook them up and make sure you have a massive party that Saturday, right? So it's just stuff like that, but just little things that you can hustle for someone that's going to pay you a good sum of money for it. I like it. I like the deal flow for entrepreneurs because you could always find like little businesses around in your area. You could just go around and like, plus you can pretend like you're older if you're just calling people and stuff or figure out like email, like an email campaign that works. I was on, I think, um, on Facebook and some group and telling my criteria and I had probably half a dozen people reach out like, Hey, here's, here's a business, here's a business. And I realized they were all extremely young. And so they've got no money. They're not brokers. They don't have this off market deal flow. I think they're just hustling their way to be able to facilitate something, but they're reaching out to people. They're faking it. I mean, but they're hustling, right? So, all right. All right. Yeah. And the other thing I thought about is like, so you have these searchers, right? Who do all this research and find all these companies and they close on one and then they're sort of out of the game so i'm like could you do something where you like 
tried to buy or come up with some deal where you like broker the companies that they didn't buy, but they were looking at and thought were decent. And then like that, maybe you have a network of like a hundred people like that. And you're kind of just like brokering their stuff over to other people like you, like, it's like, oh, I could have bought this. Ah, I think that maybe we got, we got Sam a summer job. In my early days I did, I spent like 500 bucks or something buying a software list that off market that this guy, he didn't end up closing on a business and he had thousand or 2000 leads and I bought it for a few hundred bucks. Just reached out to all those people again. So yeah, no, that's a good idea. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, cool. All right. We figured it out. All right. So 30 years from now, you've gotten all the success you want. You bought all these things that you want to buy. What's it look like? What's the empire look like? I would say a great loving marriage, with great kids, maybe grandkids. And I am single right now. So that's something that I would enjoy right now. So it's something that I would love to have and be working on today even. You won't be moving for three months. I'll tell you that much. You're not going to be going anywhere for three months. So I would say that's first priority at the foundation. But then as far as business, I think it's just kind of like, I mean, Munger at 99, Buffett 93. Like for me, when I quit and retired at 26, I realized that I could never do again. You know, I love what I do. I love this stuff. It's fascinating. It's it's exciting because I get to learn and I, I can't read books. I don't do well at school. I learn through this stuff, getting my hands dirty, understanding it by losing money, making a couple of bucks here and there. So that's what I enjoy. So for me, I would love to own companies internationally that I want to do within the next few years. So I want to have companies around the world, operations around the world that I can understand, not just in America, but internationally, because doing businesses in America it's easy, right? It's like, this is the easiest country to, to do business in, right? But try doing something. It's like the JV here, right? Exactly. You go international, you got, I mean, third world countries, like it's completely different, right? So I would love to experience that. I want to get my hand burned, not literally though, but I want to know what that feels like to do business. Can I step up and do it in those, in those environments? And so that would be exciting. But also for me to be able to grow as a leader, if I look back five years from now, there's just so much that I know, I think on a very different level. And I think there's so many different levels to be untapped where I'm sure in 30 years, I could just be, I want to be like a mini Yoda of, of business and just having all these experiences. So I think it's more, it's truly the mental aspect that I would want to improve. All right. I have some advice for you on that. If you, if you want it, that I got, I, I got it from uh, Shane Perry on uh, my first million. But he was saying, I totally think this is true. Actually, I went to, I went to this business education thing, which was terrible. I won't mention who it was, but there was one speaker and he's like, he did the whole exercise of like, what would you do in your business if I gave you 50K? What if I gave you 500K? And everyone came up with 50K was pretty normal. And then 500K people kind of had a trouble. These are a lot of small businesses. So they didn't know. They were like, oh, I'd hire some salespeople or something like that. And he was like. I think you should go buy a house in a nicer neighborhood. So you get to know richer people who are more successful. And I was like, I don't know if that's true, but that's the most interesting answer I've ever heard. So one thing I would say about that goal of yours is you just got to constantly, and this is what Shane Perry was saying is like, you got to level up who you're talking to at each thing. Not, not, you know, it's not like you don't talk to your old friends and stuff, but it's like, you got to go seek out those people at the next level and talk to them. And like, what is it that helped them 
get where they are. Right. So I think that's really cool. That's, that's awesome. And I, I totally agree with the retirement thing. I got a great quote from Dan Sullivan, strategic quote the other day is, uh, retirement is an email to the universe to come pick up your body. I love that. <laughs> so I kind of feel like you're, you and I are in that camp. Like I'm, I'm going to be doing this when I'm like 99, God willing. Right. All right. So, and then you kind of made like a multi-generational comment on X the other day. So is that like a big, like, do you see yourself as a founder of this like family empire going forward? Once you find, you know, the wife and get the kids, right. To pass it on to, but is that sort of like something you think about? I do think about that a lot and I don't know what's right, what's wrong. I don't have the kids yet, but at least from what I think now, it's, I do understand passing it along to the generations, setting them up for success. But for me, I think it's, I think it's more of the fundamentals of what you teach and the intangibles that I want to pass along, not necessarily the financial aspects. And just because I know that I feel so much more satisfaction out of my journey having gone through what I have. And if I had, I absolutely started at a pretty decent playing field, but had I had more or more access to a network or financials or whatever it was, I absolutely would not be here. And so I think those intangibles, I would love to be able to pass on and have future gen generations inherit those from me. But the financial aspect, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think uh, you could make a case for both sides. Don't give them anything. Give them enough to be able to have a little jump start. Or once they do things, whatever you deem as a minimal threshold, then, you know, fuel the fire with a little bit more capital. If they're great people and they're super ambitious or taking care of the world, then give them the capital that you've, you've earned throughout your life to further fuel. Yeah. I mean, if they're getting you deal flow in high school, maybe you give them something, right? You know, I like that. I used to be sort of, uh, in the, like, give it away, um, to, you know, to charity. And then I served at a charity and I was like, Ooh, do I, I don't think these people need any more money to waste. But anyway, I have my, I have my problems with that. So figuring out how to give it away effectively is very difficult, but I think I'm a little like Moses. I don't know if you know, Moses Kagan, he's more on like real estate Twitter and he comes from a family that survived some of them survived the holocaust and um you know he just has a different he j totally challenged my view because he's like you know i'm building i want these buildings that i buy in la these apartment buildings to pass to my great-grandchildren and be a fun foundation of like wealth and stability for them for generations and he looks at it from this place where like they everything was taken and like wives were taken right and it really challenged me like our sort of like narrow lens on today you know i'm not saying i'm giving every cent of mine to my kids and not to charity or something like that but but it definitely challenged me like there there's like a bigger time span of history to look at than just like these 50 years or 100 years all right so one last we won't end on a bummer there what is the weirdest business you've looked at and considered buying you said something about you you love like weird businesses well one that i did buy is this vending business, the amusement vending, I didn't know it was a thing to be rented. They're renting jukeboxes and kitty games and crane machines and stuff like that. I didn't know that was a thing that I was actually looking at to seriously consider buying. There's so many, um, oh man, there's just so many. Like it wasn't till recently that I knew their porter parties, porter parties existed, but I didn't know, I didn't really 
conceptualize, oh yeah, obviously that there has to be a business to lend you porta potties. That's 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 weird. I mean, like there's um companies cleaning out environmental waste, companies cleaning out gun ranges for their for the bullets and the shells and the gunpowder. There's Buddy owns a company that does all of the I forgot the actual word, but uh you know the red carpet, they have the the rope, the velvet ropes and stuff like that at clubs. So he sells those and makes a pretty good living off of it. One of my favorites was the crime scene cleanup. They have like the truck, they bring out the trucks and like mop up all the blood and splattered body parts all over the place. That was weird. And I have to, I have to hand it to permanent equity. I don't know if you know that Brent Shore. They just bought like the company that makes like roller coasters and stuff for amusement parks. I thought that was pretty good. There was a, my VA business. We, one of our customers was a company that actually went and purchased the toys for the fans or the fans purchased it and they facilitated the transactions for OnlyFans. So all of the OnlyFans toys and goodies that fans would purchase for for the models was done through my company. <laughs> oh my all right. You gotta lead with that one, man. That's that's definitely the best one. I mean I thought you were gonna go for like kids' parties or something. I was like, oh geez, no, that's different. Yeah, so my company, before they were able to automate it, we manually did a lot of that like work, and it's still a lot of it has to be done manually just because of uh, there's some privacy and sensitive information. And so, yeah, that was, but that's a little, uh, not a little, it was, it was ramping up like crazy, and we fed off of that boom. But yeah, that was, I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> that's awesome. All right, that's a good one to add on. So, all right, well, thanks for being on. It was, it was a lot of fun. We'll catch up again. We'll have you back on, see, see what you buy next and, uh, keep looking for those weird businesses. We love it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate it, Alan. Thank you. All right, see you, man. You've been listening to the Small Business Mentor Podcast, brought to you by Alan Pence. For more insights on how to navigate your business through its black holes, visit at APence on X. Don't forget to search for Small Business Mentor in your podcast app to subscribe. Thank you for joining us, and here's to your next leap in business growth.